Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Fastamai and welcome to Spotlight with me, Sarah Hendy. Today we're discussing the fascinating art form that is Naropera with its creator, Haydn Rostrin. me through spotlight at manxradio.com if you have anything creative you'd like to share and you can catch up on or subscribe to spotlight in podcast form on the manx radio website we have just one guest today who is here to tell us about an art form changing opera for the masses Haydn rostron returns to the island very soon with his naropera trio We bring another Mozart opera um, in this Nero opera form, and this time we're bringing um, Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, the Marriage of Figaro, as many listeners will know, um, is part of a three-part play uh, by the French playwright Beaumarchais, and it was um, the most popular play of any European um, playwright in the 18th century. And that's the basis of um, the uh, the opera, The Marriage of Figaro. Of course, um, an opera cannot possibly um, set every word of a play because there's just too much text. So um, um, Mozart's librettist, who was an Italian, Da Ponte, um, reorganized the story uh, in Italian, in Italian verse, 18th century Italian verse, and um, that is the text that Mozart sets. But uh, the, uh, the 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 text that Mozart sets is fundamentally all in the Beaumarchais play, uh, just simplified. Some of the uh, um, <clears throat> some of the subplots are left out. And the 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 overall plot structure is uh, uh, made more tight, um, and thereby uh, um, Mozart sets that story. It is the result it is probably the best story in all opera. I don't think there would be many people who would disagree with that. Marriage of Figaro is really a f- fantastic story. Trouble is, even though it's simplified from the Beaumarchais play, it's still an extremely complex story. But it's like one of those upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey um, complex stories, and the public um, love upstairs, downstairs, and um, Downton Abbey, and all those period dramas, which are soap operas, really. Um, Figaro, uh, Marriage of Figaro fits very much into that sort of mold, as does the whole three-play trilogy of Beaumarchais, because the first story in the first play, in the three-part play, or three-part, three-play trilogy, um, is in fact The Barber of Seville, uh, which was another very popular opera um, composed by Rossini a generation after Mozart uh, uh, composed uh, The Marriage of Figaro. And the third um, play, The Guilty Mother, was in fact set by a French composer, Millot, in the 20th century. 
That opera is, however, not as popular as the two operas on the first two plays in the Beaumarchais trilogy. The Marriage of Figaro, um, being such a good story, um, is, however, completely not understood by the public. It is written, of course, in 18th century um, classical Italian verse. Um, it is as complex as a Shakespeare comedy is, and if any listener who's um, seen a Shakespeare comedy, whether it's Twelfth Night or As You Like It or one of those, knows just how complex a comedy story is. There are uh, disguises, there are misunderstandings, there are misappropriations, there, everything is confused and then it is resolved. You start with everything being sunny, crisis piles up upon crisis, misunderstanding piles up upon misunderstanding until you reach the middle point. And at the middle point, when you go out and have your cocktail in the in the bar, everything is in crisis, like Brexit today. And then the second part of the story, um, the second part of the evening, is resolving it and leading it to a happy end. Let's hope Brexit goes the same way. <laughs> we, we can only hope. Um, it sounds like the kind of story that lends itself perfectly to your um, narropera um, structure. Absolutely. The story is so good that it is well worth um, knowing. It is, it is well worth enjoying as a story. And the Naropra structure, the formula, was developed uh, seven years ago, um, actually as a consequence of the New Zealand earthquakes in Christchurch. But that was just the, um, uh, the, uh, the spark that got it going. <coughs> the, the, the formula is something which it had lived within me and had developed within me um, much earlier than that. My, my career in, in, uh, um, in opera was 33 years as an opera manager. And so I managed opera singers and conductors and, and opera stage directors and so on and so forth worldwide uh, in all the great houses um, uh, in Germany, America, London, and so on. And, and that was my business. And in the course of that time, I actually have... Um, sat through uh, more than two and a half thousand performances of opera in all sorts of languages, some of which I know well, uh, others of which I don't know well. And so I know extremely well um, the problems that audiences have. If I'm listening to um, Tchaikovsky's uh, Yevgeny Onyegin uh, um, in Russian, what am I going to understand of it? Not one single word, uh, unless I uh, uh, watch the opera in English translation, for instance, and have prepared myself very well with the text to understand the text as it is being sung. That is another story altogether. In the 18th century, the audiences for which Da Ponte and Mozart wrote their Marriage of Figaro, they would have been able to understand it. First of all, Marriage of Figaro was the piece to see, the piece to read. And when Mozart um, uh, and Da Ponte put their opera on two years after the play was world premiered in Paris, it was the play. It was like you had to see it on the West End or in Broadway. It was Everybody who was anybody in the literary world and the musical artistic world had to see it. So um, 
they would have read the story in French. Um, they would maybe have read the story already, uh, the, 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 the libretto, I mean, in French. They would have read the text, perhaps even by that time in German translation. And the court audiences at the time all spoke Italian. All spoke Italian. And they were living in the 18th century. So the 18th century verse language was actually familiar for them. I mean, it was, they, they were so, ex, so experienced in listening to that type of Italian. And the performances would have been small scale with very few in the orchestra and uh, very small houses and almost like big rooms. And so the performance would have been intimate and they would have been able to follow quite easily the actual intricacies of the story. So they were listening to these pieces, and these pieces were written for an audience with a huge knowledge of the subject. Today, that is all gone. And so in comparison, audiences will perhaps get only 5%, 10% at the most of, of what's really going on. As you pointed out, um, Naropra is perfect for this problem for untangling this problem, which is not done in the opera houses. It's not done with, uh, even in the cinemas, it's not done with uh, surtitles or subtitles because one part of the brain reads and the other part of the brain listens. And so subtitles, surtitles are going to, if, 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 it's, if other people are like I am, I get totally confused. My brain simply cannot read and listen at the same time. So, what do we do with Naropra? We actually use one side of the brain. They're listening all the time. It's like a radio play, in a way. They're listening to the story. Everybody loves a good story well told. And we take particular care in, preparation, in the preparation of the story and the rehearsing of the story so that it flows um, and all the possible um, confusions are dealt with. I, I go through the story over and over again. Is every sentence, is every phrase understandable? Or is there confusion? Or is there an ambiguity? And I deal with every single sentence in that way so that everything is as clear as it can possibly be linguistically. So that everybody loves the story, and then when the story is punctured by 12 pieces of glorious music, which are also telling the story in song, because they're, the text of those, story, of, of those arias is translated immediately before the singer starts singing in Italian, so that you can actually follow what the singer is on about, and in the context of the story itself, so that the, the mind is listening, listening, listening. And at the end of it, they have really thoroughly understood and enjoyed the piece, because the piece is a wonderful piece. And so it's a completely new format. And so you could actually say it's not just a new way of listening to an opera. It is a new entertainment in itself. And it clearly works very well because you travel the world with Nar Opera. You, you take it to all sorts of different locations around the world. Yes, um, it, and it's growing from year to year. 
Uh, naturally enough, when, when one has a new form or a new vehicle, a new expression, then you have to market that. That's not just like having, well, we know what a musical is, now we'll write a new musical, and if it's good, it'll spread, because everybody knows what a musical is. They know what the structure is. We don't have that luxury. Naropra, we have to uh, translate for everybody. We have to explain what Naropra is. We have to create an image of how a public will enjoy it, um, what it will learn from it. Does it learn from it in a heavy educational sense, or does it learn from it in an entertaining sense? And on that note, what do you think we have to learn from these... um these operas which are now hundreds of years old in today's world? One thing we don't concentrate on enough in our modern world is um, the fact that we must be entertained. We're We're not born just to think all the time. We're not born... Um, uh, just to wrestle with our minds all the time. There are times when we actually can play either sports or we can then be entertained. That's a a playing of a sort of mental sort where we were entertained. These stories, of course, have all the common problems of the modern world. Betrayal, infidelity, responsibility, uh, um, loyalties. They are as contemporary as anything else. That's why, in fact, I think people like period dramas because they realize that the same problems that they had 100 years ago, 200 years ago, are the same we have today. Uh, Look at, at, we, we mentioned Brexit before. Look at Brexit. It's the same sort of... Um, interwoven problem, knotted problem that's been found in every century uh, um, in the last 2,000 years. It's the, 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 the way in which people cannot agree, have different um, translations of the problem, um, is human. It's human nature. It's nothing new about it. And um, a story like The Marriage of Figaro Though set 200 years ago, is absolutely a contemporary story. The people, the feelings, the emotions, the resolutions are completely what you and I would understand if we took a contemporary play. Mm-hmm. Opera, um, when it's not understood, is really intellectual and high art. But it's so high that, of course, it leaves most people outside. But Naropra actually welcomes them in because mm-hmm. it actually takes away all those um, inhibitions, all those problems for uh, um, an, a musically uneducated, theater uneducated public. And look, the, most people don't go to the theater and don't go to opera and don't go to um, symphonic concerts and when you take the society as a whole. It's only a few who go. But this is something which... Um, actually stretches out one's hand and says, if you like Downton Abbey, you will like this. You're listening to Spotlight here on Manx Radio with me, Sarah Hendy, where I'm talking to creator of Naropera, Haydn Rostron. Opera is written for a very elitist public in the 18th century. All Mozart's works are not written for the common man. They're written for an aristocratic um, upper-class elite, with the single exception of 
um, uh, 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 The Magic Flute, which was written for a popular theater. But even so, who would have gone to a popular theater in uh, 1790? It would have been the, the educated middle classes, perhaps, and a few aristocrats who loved the theater. It would have been a broader public than the court um, theater, but it's still not the working classes. Um, but let's face it, um, in, the, in the 200 years that have uh, happened uh, or been developed since uh, the late 18th century, um, people are well educated in comparison. And, and people who, who now belong to what was once the working classes are literate. They, their children go to university. They went to university themselves. They, um, the, the mobility within society is a hugely different um, uh, mobility than it was 200 years ago. So that these people who came from um, the, the classes who would once not have gone to the theater because they were not literate, um, those classes now can go to the theater because they are literate. And I mean, uh, um, most of us come from those type of backgrounds. I certainly do. I mean, three generations ago, four generations ago, uh, we were simple, a family of simple weavers in Lancashire mm -hmm. um, and didn't go to the opera and didn't have that experience in the 19th century. But uh, four generations later, I sit in 2,500 operas in all the great opera houses in the world. That's mobility of society and mobility of uh, just physical mobility. Do you see other groups, other parties working to make opera more accessible to those of us who haven't specialised in music? Yes, um, it's going on all the time. The, the opera houses try to divine ways of making it more popular. Uh, it's part of their um, outreach a small part of their outreach. Let's not make any um, uh, mistake that they're not doing that uh, um, as their first um, priority. Uh, it's a, a, a small priority at the end, and it, is, it, it actually helps in them applying for government funds as well. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Let's be, let's <laughs> it be does. realistic yeah. about this. But none of them, none of them is, has hit on... Um, a formula which is as good as Naropra. Naropra is really a good formula, even though, I mean, I created it myself, but leaving aside that element and looking at it objectively with all my experience of the problems of opera, I know how good it is. Mm -hmm. It's a matter now of seeing how widely one can spread the idea of Naropra, because if other people take over Naropra, as I hope and pray they will, it's very difficult. The, the, the operas are, uh, um, there's a lot of work goes into an opera, a huge amount of work. And for the artists themselves, they're extremely exposed. They're carrying a whole opera on their shoulders, as it were, three people. So there's no much, not much room for getting it wrong. <laughs> you're, you're, you're always yeah. exposed, as it were. Uh, and so therefore, the opera is very demanding. It's, it's high professional work. But the rewards are great. And if others can take it over and develop it, it could be an extremely valuable tool for um, uh, creating a bridge that, over which 
a public which has never been to opera and a youth which has never been to opera can actually walk. Very soon, in 10 days' time, in fact, we have the opportunity to go with you on one of these journeys. Um, You'll be performing at the Peel Centenary Centre. Yes, it's on Saturday the 15th of June. It will be our fourth Nar Opera in the Peel Centenary Centre. Um, We like the building very much. The acoustic is very good. The size is perfect. One can seat between 180 and 200 people, which enables one to have an intimate performance without having to use a microphone. Mm -hmm. So um, a microphone is always a compromise and always a... uh, It it, it never is as good as the voice itself. Above 200, above a certain size of space, it's not possible to reach the back row so that um, elderly people can hear. Um, And so Peel is, in our experience, is the best um, theatre for our purposes on the island, the the best space for our purposes on the island. Also, um, it's it's such a lovely story, the the Peel Centenary Centre, because it's run by... Volunteers, there is no one paid. No one is paid at running a totally professionally run theatre throughout the year. And it's amazing. The, uh, the, the skills, the professionalism that a community actually has inherently within it and then attracting that um, talent to come out voluntarily and run a theatre. It's a it's a phenomenal story. I mean, uh, tell that to the London theatre world, and uh, they just their mouths would drop open. Mm-hmm. It's not possible, they would say, but it is possible. And uh, the Peel Centenary Centre shows that at the very highest professional level, amateurs, people who love what they're doing, amateurs from amare t- to love, um, uh, people who love what they're doing are amateurs. Um, and one can be um, a highly professional person and an amateur as well. You work with some fantastic musicians. Would you like to introduce us to them? Uh, well, uh, we have three different nationalities to start off with. Um, uh, the one singer, there's only one singer, and that singer sings various arias of different characters and uh, we even have the effrontery to do duets and trios where she's actually playing more than one person at the same time. So all, everything is transposed so to fit her voice um, and her voice is a soprano. And she is Dorothy Janssen and she is German and she is born in Bonn and has had a, a, a very, very good career at a high international standard um, in Germany and abroad. Um, and so she is a, a, a first-class, professional, experienced soprano opera singer. Then we have a French violinist who is an extremely gifted talent who was uh, educated in Lyon and actually now lives and works in East Kent. And so, uh, and I am from New Zealand, um, uh, trained in New Zealand, and then trained in England, and then trained in Germany. So, um, I, I now am a New Zealand European. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, and we fit together extremely well. The two girls, uh, Dorothée and uh, Florian Besselon, the violinist, they're both the same age. Um, they are both instinctive musicians. Uh, they're not intellectually overloaded, which is, a, which is not an advantage for an artist. Having a good intellect, fine, but you must have an instinct. Um, artists are instinctive creatures. They um, feel the situation in performance, and they've got to have that ability to improvise, even if it's tiny. The audience doesn't notice the improvisations, but a great artist is always improvising because they're responding to the acoustic, they're responding to the public, they're responding to each other. Um, you don't you rehearse and you rehearse, but performances are quite different beast to rehearsal. And we have uh, our trio, which works. Um, it functions together. The the two soloists, as it were, the uh, soprano and the violinist, uh, make music the same way. They breathe the same way. They listen to each other. They it, it's fantastic. And I, I supply the harmony and the rhythms and the structure. I, I'm the actual, uh, almost the composer. They're the artists performing it. That's all we have time for this week, but you can listen again to this programme and all of our others as a podcast on the Manx Radio website. Join me again next Wednesday at half past five for Spotlight, but in the meantime, have a lovely creative week. Slen you.